Morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm John Strickland from JLS Consulting. Uh, welcome to the Arabian Travel Markets uh, Aviation Sessions. This is the first one of three which we have uh, today and as part of this year's programme. We're going to look this morning at the Saudi Arabian uh, low-cost market. It's a very interesting market. It's one which is perhaps not known in people's minds as a market for low-cost carriers, but it's a big population which needs to travel and the, the demand is there for the low-cost airlines business model. And there's been a lot of news about Saudi Arabia in recent weeks in terms of uh, opening up the market. Now, the first airline, or certainly the first uh, one of the, the two first airlines that did set up as low-cost carriers in Saudi Arabia is FlyNAS, and uh, they have a, you could say, a veteran uh, industry uh, leader as their chief executive. So I'd like to welcome him to the stage now, Paul Byrne, uh, chief executive of FlyNAS. Welcome, Paul. Thank you. Hope you didn't mind the veteran introduction. That's, that's fine. Seat, all right, I've been called worse. So, Paul, I think. It was right to say FlyNAS was one of two low-cost carriers, but the only one surviving uh, right. from yes. that beginning period. Yeah. Sama, um, I think, were there before, before my time, um, so it wasn't me. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, they didn't uh, survive. And you've been there how long yourself? You came in as a consultant. I came in as a consultant in July of 2014 for a nice six-month contract. Still there. Still there, yeah. <laughs> obviously did something wrong. Okay. But your own experience, I mean, you've been in the industry, what, about 35 years and worked in a number of airlines, but particularly in the low-cost sector. Uh, yeah, I had uh, kind of what you might describe as a 25-year summer job in uh, Aer Lingus. Um, so that started back in 1979. Uh, so uh, I left Aer Lingus and started into consultancy with a lot of, and pretty much... At that time, Aer Lingus had decided to take on the low-cost model. Um, we had a, an excellent, I suppose, teacher next door to us in Ryanair uh, as to how to do it. So we, I, I pretty much bought into it after fighting it for quite a while, as, as most legacy uh, employees will do. Uh, this will never work. Uh, you can't do that here. That might work in your place, but it won't work here. And uh, I was one of those guys. but. Uh, I don't know if there was a road to Damascus kind of thing, but it started to make sense to me, uh, even in revenue management, who typically would be the, the team that would fight the idea of lowering yields. Uh, but the, the balance in the, in the long run started to make sense to me, and, and the model, if you can get it right, is fantastic as a business. Was I guess it was that when Willie Walsh was leading the airline? Correct. Because I remember hearing that... Uh, he used to see Ryanair aircraft going past the window with the harp on the tail, and Aer Lingus had a shamrock, and he would say to the team, if we don't do something, there'll be no more shamrocks, only harps. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, he was an interesting guy, because like, at the time, Aer Lingus would react to things as a national carrier normally does. And Willie, I think, was the first Aer Lingus CEO who decided that Michael O'Leary wasn't going to bully him and we were going to do our own business and survive that way rather than reacting to everything that they did. Uh, he, was a, he was a great boss to work for because every one of us was as clear as day what we had to do and when we had to do it by. Well, it's uh, quite ironic that uh, some years later, uh, having not convinced the Irish government to wholly privatise Aer Lingus at the time, he's now managed to buy it for his... Uh, current uh, airline organization, IAG. Yeah, yeah, I have to say, uh, you know, a big shukran to Willie Walsh. You know, when I left Aer Lingus, it was on a voluntary basis. 
and he was putting up quite a few euros at the time for people to volunteer for it. So he paid me then, and now as AIG, he's bought my remaining shares in Aer Lingus. Well, he's a good guy. He's my ATM. Excellent. Now, after that, so you went, did you go to another airline immediately or into consulting? No, I went into consulting, um, and I actually managed to get out of the business even for about 18 months. And I was working with small and medium enterprises, and I got a phone call from a guy in Bangalore. He said, come down for one week. That was 12 years ago. I haven't been out of the business since. Okay. And you've really been around the world to you know, many different markets, particularly with low-cost focus, you mm-hmm. know, uh, parts of uh, Asia, Mexico as well. Uh, how have you found uh, the emergence of a low-cost business model around the world? Is the fundamental core the same principle or does it vary a lot? Yeah, I, I kind of met myself quite regularly. As I said, I was the guy that said this will never work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so pretty much everywhere I've gone, I've been told... That might work for Ryanair, that might work for Southwest, but it won't work here. And lo and behold, it has. Now, there are different nuances in different markets, but uh, typically the concept stays the same. Uh, control your costs, control your operation, don't get carried away with who you are, and stick with what you're good at. I mean, I was in the same boat as you, you know, uh, working for an airline uh, in the UK, K- KLM, the Dutch airline, had a UK subsidiary. And when Ryanair began to get big at Stansted, we, none of us believed it would really work. We thought this can't possibly work in Europe, especially as they were flying to many airports that people had never heard of and claiming they were close to big cities and offering fares, which seemed impossibly low. But you, I think the key point you just touched on is about costs. Mm-hmm. I think that's possibly a big change in the thinking of good airline management, and certainly Woody Walsh is one of those. So, uh, do you, would you agree about that? Many airline bosses in the past, they wanted the glamour, but they didn't think about the cost to get through to a profitable bottom line. Well, I think, I think what happens is that, you know, the bigger you get, the more input you're getting from, you know, from a layer of management, and a lot of vested interest starts to move in, people mm-hmm. who want to look good, or, you know, they think it would be a great idea if we did this, and it would look fantastic, and it would be this, and it would be that, but... Typically, they're not looking at the bottom line, you know, so what I try to say to our guys is, look, revenue is fleeting. You know, you, if you look at even Ryanair's um, yields and whatnot, it, it will vary through the year, mm-hmm. but their load factor stays pretty constant. Uh, so, long, so long as you can manage that line, then that's, that's the way to go. And if you're going to come up with an idea, come up with something that's going to make me some money. If it looks great, that's a bonus. Mm-hmm. Uh, but make sure that it, it, it at least washes its face. Because again, in terms of principles, uh, Ryanair says frequently, we are uh, load factor active, revenue passive. They will fill that plane almost at any price. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you'll hear other people say, well, you cannot judge an airline's performance by its load factor. Anybody can get high load factors by giving it away. Yeah. So the key, the trick or the discipline more than the trick I guess, is that, that balance between cost and revenue and productivity. Yeah, I think the key word there is discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to look at the better airlines of the world, they, they do what they do and they do it consistently and they, they don't get diverted from that. Uh, Ryanair are a classic in terms of the way they do things. You cannot bring a business idea to them unless it's going to at least double what their investment will be. Uh, and, and this is the important bit, it doesn't change what they do day to day. So you could bring them a $20 million idea, but if it meant that everybody had to do something different, that would be it. Forget it. 
Come back to me when it fits exactly. our model. Now, when you arrived uh, or asked to come out initially to do some consultancy with Fly NAS, what was your thinking about the Saudi market before you went there and you were reflecting whether to do the consultancy and then when you actually got there for real? Yeah. About um, well, I suppose that the, 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 I was brought in uh, and the idea was to fix commercial. Was the, so FlyNAS had had, a, I suppose, a habit of hiring a new CEO every year and that CEO would be brought in to fix something or other. And unfortunately, once that job was done, then they went and found someone else. Uh, so I was thinking, okay, I'll go in, I'll do what I normally do. Um, you know, there's bound to be some low hanging fruit that we can start off with, typically around revenue management. Um, and it struck me that the, the lack of consistency uh, for the team. So guys were looking at me thinking, okay, yeah, sure, this is a great idea, but you're going to be gone in six months. Right. And someone else is going to come in and tell me something different. Uh, it's very difficult to operate in those mm -hmm. circumstances. Uh, so one of the things that we have done in FlyNAS is try to bring in industry professionals and lock them in for a minimum of three years. Um, I've done the same. I, my first contract was for 12 months in keeping with and that was my choice rather than the company's. I said, look, you've never had a CEO that's lasted more than 12 months, so why, why would I be any different? So let's try the 12 months, see how we go. Um, that finished last November. I signed a three-year deal at that stage. So, and anyone I've brought in since has been locked into that deal as well. Uh, so that we can give a level of consistency to, to the people that work for us. Uh, if we're going to ask them to make an effort, we have to show a commitment ourselves. And I think that's only reasonable. And the airline's been around, what, is it eight years now? Nine yeah, years? Yeah, nine years. Okay. Then. Nine and years in February. Uh, I guess it was set up uh, without these business disciplines and uh, had a, perhaps a patchy path mm -hmm. initially. Yeah, it, like the first iteration of Nasser, I believe, was a company called Al Khayala, which was a, an all business class. Right. Um, you know, high, high end kind of stuff. Um, Interesting how uh, many times that comes up in the business. It's almost like 3D movies. It comes nice. around every 20 years or so. Yeah. And doesn't work. And that um, was short haul as well. That was short haul. That was, that was local stuff. Um, I mean, you can see some element of it. Like Saudi Arabia has the highest level of, of airplane ownership, private airplane ownership. Um, so I suppose there is a market there. But the market is for small private airplanes, not for 319s and 320s. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we see another iteration of that again now in, in uh, one of our neighbors. He's starting that up on Riyadh Jeddah. Good luck, you know. Um, but uh, the one thing NAS, I suppose, had at the time is it was scrapping to get airplanes. It was thinking about, should we do this? Should we do that? And as I said, you get a new CEO in, a guy comes in, he's a pilot, he fixes flight operations. Commercial still needs help, or this needs help, that needs help. So, it took a while to get a model. Um, I think about three years ago, they fixed on the low-cost idea. And it's a Saudi low-cost, which is different to the standard. So, yeah. for example, Flynas has eight business class seats, proper business class seats on every flight. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. So, it is a low-cost airline, but as you yeah. said, uh, uh, it has business class. So yeah. This is something that in the past would have been anathema for, for low cost. It would be single cabin. Um, but in this part of the world, I mean, we, Fly Dubai also has a business mm -hmm. class. So, so you, yeah. you as a, 
if you're like a battle-hardened, low-cost executive from around the world, you would say that is justified in, in, in the case of Flynass? It, it's justified on a number of our core routes. Um, you know, it's a cabin crew rest area on some of them. Uh, you know, there's certain areas we fly and certain markets we fly into, which would be, for example, all labor. So literally, these guys aren't even paying for the tickets themselves. They're coming into Saudi Arabia for two years. This is probably the first airplane they've ever been on. The next one will be the one that takes them home. Right. Uh, so they're never going to buy business class. They won't even buy me buy a sandwich, you know. So um, it gets it's somewhat wasteful in that area. Um, but by and large, it's working for us. Uh, we're quite happy with it. And um, you know, there are some markets, for example, in Dubai, where we find it very difficult to hold on to seats. You know, the demand is so high. I know talking with Fly Dubai before, they've said exactly that point. There are some markets they, they've flown to, uh, I think uh, I know, uh, some of the um, uh, Confederation of Independent States that they gave as an example that they wouldn't have got customers to come from other airlines had they not offered this product. Okay. Yeah, well, it's, it's, there is definitely, I mean, 70% of our flying is domestic mm-hmm. and there is definitely a demand there for, for a business class. And what, what about that domestic market? I mean, Saudi's got a big population. Uh, is it 80 million? Or uh, 27, I believe, if you include all the expats. 27 million in the country. Yeah. Okay, so I got that completely wrong. Okay. But, uh, but still people who want to, uh, to travel. Yeah. And yeah. haven't had the opportunity to do so, particularly in the past. Um, yeah, I think there's, there's a kind of a cry around the, the nation that, you know, it's all very well between Riyadh, Jeddah, mm-hmm. Dimam, etc. But what about us? Uh, so there's, I think, 23 airports owned by GACA. Uh, they want to expand and open them all up. I think that's the king's wish as well. Uh, we're more than happy to facilitate that, but only at a profit. So some of them are quite small areas. Uh, it would be a public service as opposed to a business. Uh, but if we see profit and sustainability, we'll go for it. Okay. And in that domestic market, what type of customers do you have? I mean, I've, in, in my notes, I've put the classic headlines of business customers, leisure customers. You know, what, who, who are these people? And could you tell us a bit about also the age profile in the country? Okay. Well, the, the age profile is, is uh, it's young. So, mm-hmm. you know, one of the first things we, we decided that we had to do was get a good app, uh, get a good website, you know, so that we can, we can get in touch with people. And we're very happy with, uh, with what we've got so far. And we're working hard on updating it at least once a month, something new, something fresh. Um, there are certain challenges in there in that uh, there's the, the payment system is kind of a broken by the, you have to confirm your, your debit card. Credit right. cards work fine, but the debit card, you need to go back and confirm it with your bank. So we, we drop off a lot of people with that, but um, there's ways of getting them back. Um, in terms of the, the person who travels with us, well, it can vary quite dramatically from one point in time of the year to the next. So we get a lot of people who fly in, as I said, as laborers. Uh, so if you look at the Riyadh and the MAM market, a lot of the external uh, travel would be to do with business. And it's at both ends. So you've got the kind of everything from the CEO to the ditch digger mm-hmm. um, flying in into the, the, the two, let's say, economic cities. And then with Jeddah, you've got pilgrims, uh, by and large, uh, huge, and usually in groups, very heavily tra- uh, travel agent focused because of the way that the visa has to work for, for Umrah and, um, 
So a lot of that is a little bit out of our control. Uh, we prefer the model of interacting directly with our customers if we can. Uh, travel agencies play a huge role still in the market. Um, and we recognize that and we've got some really good partnerships with their, with travel agencies around the region. Um, you know, so it's, it's never going to be that pure mm -hmm. Ryanair, Southwest type, well, Southwest Global Travel Agents as well. So we're in GDSs, we're, you know, we're anywhere we can connect with you, we're there. Uh, but the, the profile of the, I mean, there's probably a profile of the customer that I want is the guy who now gets into his car and drives five, six, seven hours. Around the country. Around the country, right. yeah. Okay. And, you know, it's, it's not the safest place to drive. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I'd like to make their life a little safer and a little more comfortable and they can fly with me and if they want to rent a car from me at the end of it, happy days. So much for better. <laughs> uh, so you think the surface has only really just been scratched uh, in, in the market? Yes, I think the more people start flying, more, more people start seeing it as an option. But again, that's about putting the service in and, um, you know, it, it, you've had 70 years of aviation in, in um, Saudi Arabia now and pretty much... All of it is ever since the jet age started. It's all been jets, you know. So, uh, in one way, it's a kind of a spoiled market in, in that people just expect you to pitch up with a jet. jet. Um, so it, it's an interesting place from that perspective. And you know, we there's certain challenges in the domestic market, but there is a, at certain times of the year, for example, at Eids, it's there's just an insatiable appetite for Saudis to go abroad. It's amazing. You know how, how full airports get, and typically that's the day the baggage belt will break. Right. Yeah, so. And you mentioned about religious tourism, and I was reading; it's quite incredible that uh, uh, you you have a completely separate subsidiary for the Hajj, and I don't know yeah. for, for Umrah as well. And yeah. you you lease in aircraft of all types, wide bodies, more or less whatever you can get your hands on. Yeah. How do you run that? Because I mean. Uh, I worked in those markets myself many years ago from a, a long-haul perspective, British Caledonian. So I, right. I, I know Umrah runs several times during the year. Hajj is once, but it varies, the, the time, timing varies. Yeah. So how do you manage that? And what are you offering? I mean, obviously you're offering receipts for people to get there, but it, is it a, a FlyNAS product or are you using your name to... Well, I, I suppose the business? aircraft um, will be have some kind of decal on mm -hmm. it that's... Uh, the staff will look flying us. Um, the Hajj is a very, very separate type of business, yes. and we're very careful that it's mostly Saudis that are involved in managing that. Right. Um, probably somebody with my accent wouldn't make much, do much business no. in that area. Um, but it's it's a well-run uh, group, very tight little group that that just starts almost from the end of the. The last hires, the guys have been out chasing, making sure the customers we had this year, the customers we have next year, trying to get more and trying to get aircraft in. Um, so, and it is quite a, a, a motley crew, if you like, you know, in terms of the, the fleet that we have in. But it, it suits uh, certain countries to have certain types of airplanes. And some, some countries will actually specify the type of aircraft they want. So, to, to use on the hatch. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it's an interesting thing, right. but uh, it's it's again it's very much an organised, um, you know, charter more charter than right. than. So you're not going to go online and book it because you know it's just not the way things are done with the Hajj. Uh, but it's a phenomenal business. It's there to stay, you know, and we're delighted that we're part of it. Uh, but it is very organised and. 
even your uh, access to different countries is, is restricted, you know, by, by the Hajj committee. Mm -hmm. so. And, and beyond Hajj uh, uh, and Umrah, I mean, Saudi Arabia's obviously got a lot of history. Some of that is religiously linked. But hearing some of the statements, even in the last few days, about the, the country's uh, uh, objective to move away from uh, oil reliance, and even do so fairly quickly, uh, do you see that tourism itself may broaden out uh, and that we'll see more foreign visitors who are coming for broader tourism and cultural interest reasons? Yeah, that's going to be an interesting one for Saudi Arabia. Um, but, you know, the tourism itself, I mean, there's still a lot of Saudis that haven't seen, you know, different parts of Saudi mm -hmm. Arabia. So a lot of domestic tourism is, is, is there, has potential. Uh, a lot of people can go around the country from one side to the other. There's, um, obviously, if, if people do get a tourist-type visa, which doesn't exist at the moment, we're well capable of carrying them to places of interest uh, around, around the, the country. So... It's great to see, you know, that, that the thinking is coming along those lines. Um, it's not something that we'd force the thinking on, but we're delighted to hear the, the noises that are coming out of the government at the moment, which is, you know, we're, we're there, we're in, in a position to, to take advantage, if you like, of, of whatever opens up. And we're a flexible enough organization that we can do it quickly. Okay. Uh, Paul, my next question, you, you've been asked many times, but uh, uh, maybe people in the audience are, are not aware, but the regulatory environment, again, is a, is a tough one from a point of view of low cost. You have a fuel subsidy that applies to Saudi, but not to any other airline, and you have the, the kind of quite unusual fare cap principle. Can you just tell mm -hmm. us a bit about those two things from Flynet's okay, point of view? So I suppose... When there was only one airline, uh, they received the subsidy and the king quite wisely decided if I'm going to subsidize you, you can't overcharge my citizens. So we have a fair cap. So then upstarts like ourselves arrive and, uh, you know, you can have a fair cap. Okay. Can we have a subsidy? No. So we have a little bit of a derogation on the fair cap. So at the moment, I think if we take Jeddah Riyadh, uh, the fare cap has been increased up to 310 rials, which is still less than $100. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's the most anyone can charge up to 10 days before the flight. Uh, Saudi are allowed to increase that by 10% within that 10-day period. We can go up to 80% increase. Uh, then this is for an economy seat. Right. Um, there is another one that says that if you reach a 70% load factor and it's outside of the 10 days, you can also increase the, the, the fare cap by those amounts. Uh, I've no idea why the 10 days or the 70% are significant. Um, again, it's one of those things that seems to have happened in a civil servant's office. Right. Just to um, come up with an idea. Just, yeah, let's, let's pick, let's pick two numbers. Yeah, right. yeah. Like, why not 50% in 20 days? Yeah. You know, um, makes no sense to me. But you mentioned that applies to economy fares. Does that mean yeah. that you are free to charge what you regard as commercial fares in business class? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And the other thing I think is amazing, I think I talked to you about this when we, we first met a few months ago, is that the Saudi market generally books incredibly late. Those, you get quite yeah. high load factors, but 10 days out, you might be sitting on a, looking at your booking system at a fairly empty plate. Yeah, I think if I was working for Michael O'Leary, I'd have been fired quite a long time ago when he sees the uh, advanced bookings. But um, there is that, if you'll excuse the phrase, the inshallah, you know, let's go. Uh, we do have people who 
will fly today from Riyadh to Jeddah and vice versa, or the man who has nothing booked at the moment. Right. And by the end of the day, they will have flown. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, you know, you cater for that. It's not uncommon in, in a lot of the um, larger Muslim markets. Indonesia was very similar. Indonesia people arrived at the, at the um, airport and were literally, they had this uh, individual known as, uh, not very nicely called, the airport rat, who literally went and grabbed your bags and said, where are you going? Right. And would disappear. And you just literally chased that guy to a ticket counter. Okay. And he was the, effectively the travel agency <laughs> that brought you to whatever airline it was and, and you bought your ticket from them. That's amazing. Um, so, you know, but it was, it was quite common for people to just pitch up at the airport with no bookings. Um, it's a bit scary sometimes, especially when you're new to the business. You kind of look at the advanced bookings and you go, oh, lads, this can't work. And, you know, it, it's, we're trying to educate the public that it's, you know, if you, if you book earlier, we'll charge you less. And we, we, you know, we've gone below the fair cap uh, on a lot of domestic markets to try and generate some business. Stimulate new demand. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it works. Sometimes people are just resistant to it. They'll, um, you know, they, they'll, they'll make their mind up when they're, when they're good and ready. So. And what, what about load factors? Uh, I mentioned about Ryanair's approach mm. about being very aggressive on load factors. Are, are you in what you would call a, a ballpark of low-cost airline load factor performance? No, uh, we, we, we'd, we'd like more, uh, to be honest with you. And this is partly the encouraging thing for me is that we can manage to be profitable at what I consider to be um, less than optimal uh, load factors. Right. So um, that's, that's the good news. Uh, I, I, we put a lot of pressure on our commercial team this year and we've got some good partnerships with OTAs as well who are doing you know, really good, good work for us to try and boost that load factor. Um, but we're not going to do it at any price. So there are, there are particularly strong times of the year where you just don't play with your fares. And, um, you know, there's certain movements around the night, uh, around the country. Like the king goes down to, to uh, Mecca for Ramadan. Mm -hmm. The whole of his uh, government moves with him. Right. So everybody goes to Jeddah. Amazing. So, so there's a whole so back want, and forth to that. If you month. want a farm stamp, you know, right. you've got to go to Jeddah. Okay. Yeah, and that's, it's, it's a very unique kind of market characteristic. You you've got to be aware of something. Yeah, like I don't that. think old Mr. O'Leary would fancy that one, you know. Yeah. So. <laughs> what about connecting traffic? Uh, I'm thinking of online. Uh, do you get people connecting between your international and domestic flights or between domestic points via? Uh, one of the hubs? Uh, we, we get a little bit of that. Uh, a lot of it is, some of it can be self-connecting. Mm. Um, we don't really sell it. We don't see ourselves as a connecting carrier as such. I think in the past that might have been one of the, the big ideas, um, you know, to connect, especially when we were flying A330s, but uh, it, it's not what we do. We're much better as a, we fly we have an excellent uh, operations team, so we fly 85 to 90% on time. Um, we get people to where they want to go uh, efficiently. And so most of our customers, as far as we're concerned, are point to point. But I do know that we have quite a high number of the people, for example, who fly to Dubai, who will connect into the international uh, airlines that are right. here. Onto Emirates and so uh, on. Or, or, yeah, anything, any, anyone that's flying there. I mean, there's every color of airplane that you can see out at the airport here. And this is one of the reasons why the, the XB is more attractive to us. 
And uh, not only do you buy, but officially you have a partnership, a code share partnership with Etihad. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I believe that does pretty well for you in terms of you know, your flights to Abu Dhabi uh, are good performers and benefiting um, mm-hmm. Etihad's uh, long haul network. Yeah, it's, it's an excellent partnership. Uh, we kind of reinvigorated it in the last 10 months. Um, we, we see a lot, of, a lot of good fit between ourselves and, and, and Etihad, and um, we are getting some good traction with their management team as well. There's some great engagement from them. We haven't, we haven't heard no yet. For anything we've asked, and we, you know, when they ask us for stuff, we we do try our best to deliver. Uh, but you're right. I mean, our Riyadh Abu Dhabi started there recently, and uh, last December, and it's just gone gangbusters. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's it's certainly something. The relationship we would like to expand it, but it is, as you say, it's it's geared around their their main banks of departures internationally. Uh, we do have some point-to-point traffic, especially around the weekends. I was going to ask, does it, it's got to work commercially for both sides, because yeah. often the, channel, uh, the challenge is for independent airlines that are cutting up the ticket into its portions for each player. Yeah. You know, Either the long-haul airline gets the lion's share of the money and the short-haul carrier gets next to nothing, or if you claim your bigger share, then they're not happy with what they get left with. Well, that's, that's, yeah, that's where partnership comes in. So mm-hmm. like, that's a big, long discussion before you put anything up for sale. You know what's in it for me, effectively, yes. and we're happy with you know the way that's been managed at the moment, and we're happy to go into partnerships with airlines that make sense, you know, uh, in terms of our traffic and what the demand is in the kingdom, and from elsewhere to the kingdom. But um, you know, it has to make sense to us. We're not just going to do it just to fill an airplane. And there's not likely, there's not a likelihood of you becoming part of Etihad's Equity Alliance, who are actually investing in you. Thankfully, something like that is well above my pay grade. So right. you know, I just uh, I have a simple job of flying out to just make it profitable. As a CEO. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and yet, you did touch on it. You you briefly did long haul, uh, but mm. only for about a year, I think. Uh, oh, thankfully, it was less than that. The amount of money we yeah. lost on it, but. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, I think, started around July. Uh, it only just started when I had, had arrived as a consultant and it stopped before I was the CEO. Right, okay, so very short-lived. Yeah. And in terms of your network decisions, I mean, how, how, do you, how do you go about deciding where to fly? What is the, the process? And second point on that, how do you decide the link between uh, you do domestic or international destinations? Well, I suppose, you know, if I talk to anybody in the room here, every one of them would have an idea where we should fly next. And unfortunately, in the past, that's how we managed. Uh, so someone would have a light bulb moment in the office, why don't we fly to, and we did, depending on how high up the hierarchy they were. Yeah. And, uh, you know, poured money into it, which was fantastic and didn't work. And so, ah, well, there you go. You know, so now we're a lot more scientific. Um, I mentioned earlier I'm bringing in people and the key to it is professionals who've worked and they understand the low-cost model, the low-cost thinking, and how to, to make a plan. So we, we've, we've now bolstered our network planning team and they pretty much work off projections of profit. You know, so there are plenty of places you could fly and there would be lots of people who fly there, but the key question is, can we make? Can we do this at a profit? Um, so you know, and a perfect example, for example, would be the Indian subcontinent, Pakistan, Nepal, Bangladesh. 
India itself, um, it, you know, there are literally millions upon millions of Muslims who would want to come into Saudi Arabia. But it's getting there at a profit, mm -hmm. getting them in there at the right price. And so, as I mentioned, we're an A320 carrier. At the moment, the Arabian Peninsula, Egypt, Khartoum, Turkey, that's about the, the ring within which we, we see ourselves flying. There's plenty of opportunity in there. As you know, there's a, we, we've opened up probably four international and six domestic routes in the last year. And we'll continue along that line. But most of our flying, 70, 65 to 70%, depending on the time of the year, is domestic. There is a good demand there. And once we can do that profitably, um, we'll, we'll continue to expand there. And uh, you mentioned uh, Istanbul. I, I think I, I saw you going to enter or you are entering partnership with Pegasus, the, mm -hmm. the, the large Turkish low-cost carrier. How, how will that work? Will, will you physically fly into Istanbul or do you already? Or will we do already. Uh, it's an interesting place. We fly to Sabiha Goshen, which is the, yeah. the Asian airport. Yeah. Um, and so that, that's Pegasus Bay, right. home base. Um, I, I had a, an excellent contract with those guys a couple of years ago. Uh, they're a fantastic organization. Mm -hmm. Um, they really do their business well, yeah. and uh, it made perfect sense to us. There is a huge demand in both countries to yes. travel between. Um, you know, it's hard to get your hair cut in Riyadh without talking to a Turk. Right. Um, and there's a lot of uh, property ownership in uh, Turkey coming from Saudi Arabia. So it's, it's, it's a nice mix. They have a fantastic net network domestically, so do we. Um, Sabiha, we'd like to do at least daily, if not double daily, from both Riyadh and Jeddah, if we could. Uh, they're building a second air runway there, so access at the moment is, is limited, um, where we keep banging on the door, asking for better times, asking for more times. I mean, Istanbul overall is constrained, isn't it? With both it is, airports, yeah. so we're going to get yeah. a new airport. Uh, they are, yeah. That's, that's going to be the years. biggest airport in the world. Yeah. yeah, and they're going to do it in two years. Good luck. You know, I wouldn't put it past them, though. We can't get a new yeah. runway in the UK. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think Dublin Airport is finally, after about yeah, 14 years, decided to put another one in. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's, but, you know, the, the, the plans, I think the Turks, to be fair to them, they are, they're good builders. They, they go in and they... They do things that they say they're going to do, so that's. It might not take as short a time as yes. they plan to do it, but um, the will is there to do it. So that's. I'm happy with that. And Pegasus, as I said, is a good fit for us. So uh, well, they also have a very different to Michael Leary, but a very charismatic leader in uh, Ali Sabanji. Yeah, uh, yeah. Ali's he's a good guy to work for. He tell he looks after his people, and you know, in, in Pegasus, you don't work for Pegasus. You're part of the Pegasus family. Yeah. And that's again something that I've uh, I really enjoyed being a part of at the time, even mm -hmm. though I was you know only a consultant. Yes. I was made felt at home, and I think that's something that we've tried to generate in Flying Ass, and we refer to ourselves as the Flying Ass family, and we look yeah. after one another. So it it does make it a lot easier for people to come into work in that atmosphere, and to give you 100% more regularly. Okay. Now, you mentioned about the fleet and your short-haul airline. Um, you have, what, 26 aircraft currently and getting mm -hmm. a couple more. And uh, you said publicly that you will grow substantially. Yes. To about 100 aircraft? Well, we, we, we're currently in an RFP process with both Boeing and Airbus. Um, and we've said one that the magic number is 100, but effectively it'll be 60 airplanes uh, plus optional 40. 
is, is the kind of the way we're looking at it. But we leave that up to them. It depends on the deal. Um, but if you look at my fleet at the moment, everything is leased. Mm-hmm. Everything has to go back in six years. So in six years' right. time, we won't have any of the aircraft we right. have currently. So there's 26 straight off out of your 60. And if we want to grow at a, what we consider a reasonable rate of four aircraft net per year, you've almost got 50 there, and we've only gone five years. Yes. You know, so you know, the, the, there's some huge work going on in places like Mecca, uh, you know, and down in Jeddah to expand both the, the airports and the religious infrastructure. And that in itself then will free up more visas. That will give better access to people doing Umrah, people um, coming in for the Hajj. So, you know, that'll only benefit us and we need to be geared up for that. And uh, in terms of that fleet, you, you mentioned um, Airbus and uh, Boeing. Uh, I think I saw also Bombardier mentioned it. Have, mm. have they really got to look in? I mean, they, they, they've been sweating for several years with yeah. this uh, C-series, which they're finally going to see in the service this year. I think even this week, they might get a bit of luck if they get the big order from Delta. Smaller plane, but would you look at even a, a mixed fleet of it? Had good we, they, they were in our thinking originally, um, but I think we, we kind of thought it through and thought, do we really want to be a launch mm-hmm. customer? It's um, always a challenge. It is, and I think it's a challenge for bigger airlines, yeah. to be honest with you. So mm-hmm. uh, we, we unfortunately ruled them out at that stage. You can't afford to see your punctuality shot to pieces or no, planes and we've, on the we've ground. No, ex- we've had experience of different aircraft types that don't suit the region, mm-hmm. and it, it wasn't pretty. So it really is a two-horse race. Pretty much. I have both these guys on a panel this afternoon, so I can oh, good luck. pass yeah, on yeah. your thinking to yeah, well, Airbus and Boeing. Just keep telling them that zero is a good number. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so you've got the, the fleet growth planned. Uh, infrastructure is changing. I mean, as I mentioned, we, we, we've heard a lot in the last few days about Saudi uh, looking at this, uh, I think it's is it called the National Transformation Plan, uh, wanting to change. And they say part of that uh, is the liberalization we've been waiting for, we, uh, for other airlines to come in. Mm. And then perhaps for me at a distance, a surprise in the last two weeks to see Saudi itself is going to establish a low-cost airline for next year, fly a deal. Did, did that come out of the blue for you, or was it something you knew was in the offing? Well, you know, the, the, the rumors of, of a Saudi a low cost have been bouncing around for a little mm-hmm. while. Uh, so it didn't really come as a shock, no. Um, like, we've been, since I arrived in the kingdom, I've been hearing about these two new airlines that are going to start. And now there's three. Yeah. Bring it on. We're, we know what we are, you yeah. know, and we know what we do well, and we know what people like with us. And so long as those things stay constant, then we're happy to stay in business, and uh, we're happy to take on all comers. Uh, we've, you know, we've survived very well in the last 12, 13 months. Um, in fact, we've done better than that. We've been thriving, so uh, I don't see any reason why that should be damaged just by a new entrant. Uh, we've consistently said that we wanted to see more competition in the kingdom uh, because more competition will bring more people flying. It'll broaden people's thinking in terms of getting on a plane rather than getting into their car. And you know, a rising tide will lift all boats. So we want to be out ahead of all of that. We'll, we'll still be flying ass by the time everyone else shows up. So you really got first mover advantage, you are? 
Well, it's first mover, but I think we've got a confidence now yeah. in the company that we know what we are. We finally, we finally figured it out. Consistency, yeah. as you said. Well, we, and, and we're delivering consistent product. We're delivering good yeah. value and on time. So, um, you know, if we continue to do that and not get, a, you know, airs and graces about ourselves, then yeah. I think we've, we'd be quite happy to see anyone else fly in the market. Right. It'll be interesting to see how it pans out. Mm-hmm. Like, will they be subsidized? Will they... Um, will the fair cap a lot disappear? Of, the fair cap won't disappear. Right. Like, there is a plan to reduce it consistently over mm-hmm. the next five years down to zero, but five years is a long time in Saudi yeah. Arabia. Yeah. Paul, we've got a few minutes left. I just want to see, would anybody like to ask Paul a, a question while we have the time? If you would, just uh, stick your hand up and uh, uh, we'll get a mic to you. Five minutes in case you do decide to. That's great. It's nice, but everyone asleep. Excellent. Uh, attentive audience, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, so there's a lot going on, basically. Hey, I think you've got one there. A question? Yeah, this lady. So we'll just get a microphone. We've got a mic to a lady just over here to the left. If you wouldn't mind just uh, introducing yourself uh, when you ask a question. Thanks. Hi, good morning. Dina Kamen from uh, Bloomberg News in Dubai. Hi, Paul. Um, just a quick question about um, y- your thinking on why the C-Series is, is no longer in, uh, in the race. We know that that was one of your considerations. So if you can elaborate a little bit more on um, y- your thinking for that. Uh, well, it's, I suppose the first thing I could say is nothing personal. Um, you know, Vombardier are an excellent company. But we just didn't want to be the test or the launch customer for anything. Uh, it's as simple as that. Any other questions for Paul? Well, one that I didn't ask you, Paul, uh, a very obvious question, both for you as an airline and the country. You know, this massive plunge in oil prices, uh, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, you benefit in your fuel pricing. Yeah. But, you know, you're in the, one of the, the core production centers of the world and it has an effect on Yeah, travel. I think it's, it's reverbial two-edged sword. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my CFO is delighted in terms of his cost reduction. Have, have gone through the floor, which is great. Um, it's fantastic in terms of, as, a, as most, air, most airlines are probably enjoying it, having suffered high prices for a number of years. Um, but... The other side of it is there's less money in the pocket of my customer. And as I said, 70% of my business is domestic. So uh, people are putting a little more thought into whether they will fly mm-hmm. as opposed to how many times they'll fly. And so there is that, that element of a little bit of putting the brakes on. You can yeah. see it around uh, the kingdom in terms of the commerce. Um, interestingly, like the big companies are starting to think about cost now. And, you know, typically what happens is, you know, corporate entertainment and travel are the first two to get hit. Right. And then training, usually, that's the next one. So, um, yeah, it's, it's great to have it off the books, but, it, you know, it'll, it won't last forever. Um, you still have to get your fundamentals right. Yes. And, um, you know, for, for the kingdom, I suppose it's, it's a bit of a shock. Um, they've never had to really deal with that level before uh, but it's it has as you said you mentioned that you know that the royal family are now thinking about how do we change our economy how do we keep it going 
so they're not you know they're, they're coming out fighting which is fantastic mm-hmm. um and we're fully supportive of the, of that and, and we see ourselves being a saudi national carrier as, as getting in behind that and, mm-hmm. and and moving commerce around the kingdom and and in and out of the kingdom so yeah it's it's always nice to take cost out of the structure it's not something that we could be sitting here in four or five years time talking about 150 dollars a barrel you know so it's just one of those things. I mean, maybe arguably for, for Saudi, Saudi Arabia, uh, with that thinking by the, the royal family, parallels could be drawn with Dubai, who had the, the same reflections years ago, with Dubai having such a, a small amount of its income from oil. And mm. we look at Dubai today. Yeah. yeah. Well, it did. It adapted really well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's one of the great tourist destinations now at this stage, like where people will, and we benefit greatly from that as well. You know? Yes. So, um, yeah, it, it, you know, it, there's always, I suppose, the initial shock. <gasps> what are we going to do now that this has happened? But then, you know, clear thinking comes in, and, mm-hmm. and thankfully we've got people like that in the, in the royal family in, in Saudi Arabia, and, it, like, they're not panicking, they're yes. sensible, and, and they're going, and they're looking after their citizens, and we're quite happy to be part of that. Excellent. Any more for any more? Uh, yeah, there's a question, too, from the side. We just get the uh, mic over on this corner, please. Can we have that, Mike? Thanks. Um, yeah, uh, Imtiaz Mukbal from Travel Impact Newswire in Bangkok. Um, you mentioned Egypt and, uh, and Turkey and, and the GCC area as your, as your current catchment area. What about India and others like Iran and Pakistan and others also within the three, four hour flying radius? Yeah. Um, okay, well, Iran at the moment is not something that we can politically uh, deal with. Uh, we've been told that it's not going to happen for us. That's fine, unfortunately, but it's fine. Um, we had got some plans to go there. We had permissions, especially on the Umrah side, but, you know, things move on. Um, we've been, we've, we did fly to Pakistan quite substantially um, when we had A330s. It didn't work for us. Uh, we found it very difficult to make money there. So I suppose once bitten or maybe even twice bitten. Um, it's, it's difficult on a 320 to get to many places in India. And there's also quite a restrictive um, bilateral agreement between the two countries. So we don't have any access to the Indian market as such outside of the Hajj. Um, having said that, it's probably not something in our short-term plans. Uh, there's a lot of uh, routes that we could do here in the Arabian Peninsula, for example, that we don't fly to at the moment. So um, maybe once we start flying, you know, whether it's 320 NEOs or 737 MAXs, we can get that five-hour range. But at the moment, it would be a struggle. And we're not, we're not a brand that's in the, in the Indian market at the moment, so that would be quite a struggle for us. So we'd prefer to approach that through our partnership rather than a direct access. Well, Paul, I think we've uh, one more question, and then we're going to be out of time. Hi, um, Murad Mirza, uh, Global Diversity and Inclusion Foundation. Hi, Paul. Hey, Murad. Uh, just wanted to gain your perspective on uh, diversity and inclusion perspective uh, within your organization, and whether Southization is a challenge for you, as far as putting some quotas in the workforce. Okay, that's, uh, it's an interesting one for us. Saudiization uh, is something that myself and the other guys that have brought in, we've, I've set every one of them at KPI this year to 50% minimum. Um, 
it's a challenge because there's no low-cost experience in the country. So it's not like I have a bunch of executives sitting around waiting to be hired who have aviation knowledge. Um, what we do have, though, is a lot of, as I mentioned earlier in the, in, in the interview, we've got maybe 50% of the country is under 25. So we've got a lot of guys who could learn the business. And we've proposed to the government that we would set up uh, a graduate program where we would bring people in and, and move them around the business for two or three years and depending on their progress then fit them into the management team. Uh, we're always looking for Saudi talent and um, you know it, it's, it can be a challenge. Uh, it's sometimes quite comfortable to work for a company like Saudi. Um, not so much with us because we, we actually ask you to do a full day's work. Uh, so you know it's um, and then, it's something we're focused on, something we believe is the right thing to do. Uh, I don't see myself as being in Saudi Arabia in, you know, a lot, as a long-term thing, and I think it's my duty as, uh, in the current job to try and line up a, a good Saudi replacement who knows how to take clients to the next level after I leave. Paul, we're out of time. Very, very interesting to hear the number of things that uh, you've personally experienced, what you've brought to, to your role in FlyNAS, the positive progress and uh, the challenges and opportunities that are coming your way. So uh, if you are still in the helm in the next couple of years and I'm still doing these sessions, let's have, let's have another talk and see how the market's changed. So Inshallah. Paul Byrne, Chief Executive of uh, FlyNAS, uh, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, John. Thank you. <laughs> Cheers.